five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. Just a note to start with, later this month, we're launching our new pop-up podcast, Terranauts, hosted by Ian Christie. Ian's first interview will be with Stéphane Germain, the CEO of GHGSAT. If you haven't listened to my interview with Ian about Terranauts, it's available in our feed. You should also know that the Space Cube and Terranaut podcasts are offered for free. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need to make money. It's that we, just that we give you the option to support us or not. If you think our podcasts are worth supporting, and I certainly think so based on the feedback I get, then go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash and select a monthly pledge option. Also note, starting this fall, we're going to provide subscriber-only content available to our patrons on Patreon. Okay. On to today's podcast. Today is the second part of our two-part series focusing on the commercialization of low Earth orbit with a focus on the International Space Station and other potential commercial habitats. My guest, as in the first episode last week, is Adrian Manjuka, the Commerce Director at NanoRacks. NanoRacks describes themselves as both the largest commercial user and private investor on the International Space Station with customers from over 30 nations. Recently, NanoRacks released a NASA commission study titled An In-Orbit Commercial Space Station Habitat Development, Enabling Cost-Effective and Sustainable U.S. Presence in Low Earth Orbit. NanoRacks partnered with 14 other organizations to create the 170-page report. In my conversation with Adrian, we go over some of the key findings of the report and delve into what the real-world LEO space station habitat marketplace is. As we start the second episode, Adrian just answered the question of how the marketplace will react to other foreign entities, be it commercial or state, entering the LEO marketplace. Now he answers the question of why the ISS should be the final government-owned and operated space station in low Earth orbit, as stated in the report. Listen in. It does, but... um Going back to the question, the one piece that I don't think you quite addressed was um, the ISS being the final government-owned and operated space station in low Earth orbit. Sure. So sure. Um, briefly, if you could, uh, why? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, one of one of the conclusions in Leocom, uh, as as you mentioned, was you know we we don't we don't do well, uh, or or the the private sector does not do well in setting expectations for investment if the government is there offering similar services at a lower price, um, or, or identical services at at a lower price. Um, you know, the, the government bylaws prevented uh, from competing uh, uh, with the private sector. From from the beginning, the government has sought, uh, you know, bids uh, on contracts to build critical infrastructure, to build, you know, military and commercial and, and other infrastructure. That's that's the way that, you know, that, that it works in the United States and uh, and should continue to, provided, you know, we, we keep trying to increase the, the efficiency of those transactions. Um 
I, I think to say, uh, you know, yay, verily from now into uh, the uh, the infinite expanse of time, the government will never build uh, or, or NASA will never build another space station in low Earth orbit. Um, I, I, I don't think that's the intent uh, of of that statement. I, and I also don't think that's true. <laughs> Um, maybe, I mean, certainly now, uh, certainly in the near to medium and even long-term future, um, I, I think that's what, what NASA is going for, uh, in order to assure the private sector that, uh, the era of commercial space stations has begun, um, and, and it is safe, uh, to invest, uh, in space, the stations in multiple orbits, serving multiple customers and, and the government won't try to take any of those customers away. Um, but once there is a robust infrastructure, um, you know, one, once it's sustainable commercially, you know, I, I think it would be perfectly within, within bounds for, for NASA to come back and say, okay, well, we have a specific need, so maybe we'll, uh, off of one of these stations um, in, instead of building our own. Or there is a service that is so specific, you know, we want to build some sort of particle collider, something really cool that, that the commercial sector doesn't want to invest in. Um, we're, we're willing to build that. And, and that's really the nuance there, right? The, the, this, this constant tension that we have in between the private sector and the public sector in the United States, I, I think it's a source of extraordinary creativity. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes it goes off the rails, like all things, but, but generally it's, it's been, a, uh, it's, it's been the source of really extraordinary stuff here. I mean, you know, the, the, there are things that do not make money, right. That we still need to do as a civilization to push scientific innovation forward. Uh, like, as I said, particle colliders, like basic fundamental research, um, those, those things don't, don't show profits, don't yield profits in the near medium. And again, even sometimes long terms, but in the very long term, it's the only thing that pushes our civilization forward without particle colliders. We would not have the internet. We wouldn't have cell phones without the investment in, uh, you know, in Apollo and in the Apollo program, a massive investment and very controversial. I think a lot of Americans, a lot of people around the world tend to forget how controversial the expenditures on the Apollo program were. And yet they still give us these insights that allow us to invent things like computer memory. Uh, and, and no one can, can question the value that that has brought to today's economy and, and how much it's enriched our lives. Um, so, let me let me repeat that the last government owned and operated station in Leo, I understand why NASA is saying that, and I and I do agree setting expectations is the right way to go and helping the commercial sector transition and, and take over uh, operations so that in in many years when when it is it is fully robust and fully ready, NASA can just come and say, Hey, I just you know, I want to run a couple tests. Can I use your platform? Great, thanks. You know, here's here's a hundred thousand bucks and and we're good to go. We don't need to build it ourselves. Great. Yes, I get that. Um, but I, I do want to leave the room open for uh, for for some really extraordinary innovations and 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 fundamental research that you know we may want to do in the future. That's that's the the foundation of American creativity. Um, so hopefully that that starts to answer your question a little better. Okay. So 
Another conclusion in the study is that NASA and the U.S. government should consider LEO activity a public-private partnership, or PPP. What should be the parameters of that partnership? Uh, that's, uh, whew, that's a doozy. Um, I, you know, I, I think we've gotten into uh, a, a little bit of, uh, of that so far, but uh, one of the... Uh, one of the concepts that that we hold very close at Nanorax is this idea of uh, government as a customer. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, there, there's this there's this perception, I think, uh, you know, in a, in a lot of places uh, in the industry and, and beyond that if uh, you have any source of revenue uh, that says U.S. government on it, uh, you are not a commercial company, um, and and I just I I think I, I understand where that sentiment comes from, uh, but I don't uh, I I don't agree uh, with it, and here's why: um, at Nanorax we have a set list of services. They have specific prices, uh, and those prices can fluctuate up or down depending on exact customer needs. Um, but those customer needs. Uh, you know, if if you need an extra service on top of the service baseline that we offer, it's an option. And that option, guess what? Uh, like a sunroof on a, on a car has a has an associated price, um, and and we offer those prices uh, to the government transparently, exactly as we offer them to the commercial sector. Uh, we. Uh, you know, we, we reevaluate those prices based on, you know, how much work we're putting in based on our overhead and, and so on and so forth. Um, but, uh, but, but those prices are set fundamentally and, and the service is also set. Uh, so the government comes to us and almost like I was just talking about in the previous question, where in the future, the government doesn't want to own or operate these stations. They just want to buy services. That's what they're already doing from us. You know, if, if NASA wants to buy an airlock cycle from the Bishop airlock, we have that service listed as a price. Uh, and, uh, and, and we have a certain set of capabilities that NASA can avail, uh, can avail itself of, um, uh, and, and, and that's, that's kind of, that's the nuance there, right? So NASA's not coming to us and saying, um, okay, build us hardware X with specification Y um, and uh, for price Z, but if you go over, you know, it's a cost plus contract, so we'll give you a little more money. Um, and, uh, and, you know, here's the contract. Congratulations. They solicited, of course, there's a competition. That's very important. Um, and, uh, and, and there you go. That's, that's your contract. That is a government contract. I absolutely agree. When the government comes in and, and sets specifications of a piece of hardware, um, and, and that hardware is then built, uh, and custom built. So there's, there's expense associated with that. Um, yeah, that's, that is, that is a government, uh, uh, contract. That is not a public private partnership. That's not, that's not a partnership. That is a, uh, a, uh, well, really government to contractor, uh, relationship. A partnership is when we have access to this extraordinary piece of infrastructure on the ISS. NASA gives us access to up mass and down mass in return for that. 
we provide very specific services aboard the space station, everything from satellite deployments to external uh, external hosted payloads to internal pressurized payloads. We do some extraordinary experiments. We've done 750 and counting. We've launched 250 satellites. And guess what? Everyone knows what they're getting when they buy that thing. And NASA, you know, we're, we're very, very proud to have worked with the Alana program, the educational launch of nano satellites. We've launched dozens of satellites for that program. It's, it's, it's one of the, one of the, uh, uh, pride, it's, it's, it's pride and joy of, of our, uh, you know, mission managers to, to be able to work with, with students from around, uh, around the country on that. Um, just really extraordinary stuff. Um, and so in return for this infrastructure and for everything that NASA has, has given to us, has worked with us on, has, um, you know, has that, that we have that, that we have paid for, that we have worked with, you know, the infrastructure that we built, NASA can avail of these services and, and can buy them as services and not put too many requirements and just say, hey, we want to launch three CubeSats uh, by uh, next December. Uh, do you guys have the capacity to do it? Yes, great. Here's a contract. Go for it. And they already know all the terms and conditions. They already know what they're getting. It's a set service, and it's done. And they don't have the you know they don't have the the latitude to put special requirements or crazy parameters that we have to build all this new equipment for. Um, that is that's really the mechanics of of what I see as a public private partnership. Now, now there are other kinds of public private partnerships. NASA can invest, uh, you know, in in us and and help us develop specific technologies to respond to specific, you know, incoming future needs. I, I get that. You know, there, there are a lot of dimensions to what a PPP could mean. And, and I get into what that is in, in Leocom, I, I think, you know, in, in some great depth. Um, but in terms of what it looks like today and how we manage to service the most customers, uh, reduce costs to, uh, to NASA and, and create the most value within the infrastructure, that we have right now, that's how our, that's how our public private partnership works. Um, I, I sincerely hope that, that that can continue on into the future. And, and that can be a model for the expansion of, of similar partnerships with NASA and, and the rest of the government, uh, here to four, uh, here to four, <laughs> here on forward. <laughs> so we just finished talking about the, um, public private partnerships. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, outposts other than the ISS. So aside from the ISS, how do you see outposts developing? And when you talk about free flyers around the ISS, what are you envisioning for that? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question because our vision of what a space station should be um, has has really been colored by a very limited experience, right? So you have the ISS, um, you had the Mir prior to that, um, you know, a, a number of other uh, iterations, the Salyut series, um, you know, obviously Skylab, uh, and and really our our visions 
for even in science fiction, you know, you see these giant structures where where on board you can do all sorts of cool stuff and and really really neat uh, intersections of you know human life and laboratory space and kitchens where people are cooking and you know living and exercise rooms and and all that great stuff and you know maybe even a tourist suite where where you can you know spend two weeks and look back on Earth and you know at, at great expense, obviously, but, uh, you know, all I'm trying to get at is, is <laughs> the vision is very broad, but when we think of free flyers, um, we think much more purpose built, uh, infrastructure. So our Leocom study and our work with, you know, our, our extraordinary partners, um, revealed to us that, you know, a, a, an infrastructure that tries to be or, or a, an outpost that tries to be everything for everybody at all times is, is not necessarily doomed to fail, but, you know, it's kind of the old jack of all trades, master of none, um, you know, statement where, for instance, one of, one of the most interesting findings, I didn't know this uh, prior to talking to our colleagues at uh, Maiden Space. I'm, I'm happy to call them out uh, for, for having you know, contributed uh, so much to our study in, in such a positive way. But I didn't know that, for instance, you can't very effectively spin uh, Z-Bland fiber uh, on orbit when uh, there are astronauts kind of banging around the spacecraft and running on that exercise treadmill and doing experiments and you know, holding on to, to grapple points and, and kind of moving around that, that disturbs this really finely tuned process that benefits not only from the pristine environment of microgravity, but also a very still environment where that really sensitive spindle or whatever you want to call it, uh, doesn't move at all. So in order to do things like, you know, advanced industrial manufacturing, uh, what are the things that we shouldn't be doing on board? Well, maybe we shouldn't have tourists on that space station that, you know, are peeking around the window or moving around the spacecraft. And sure, you can optimize for spinning times when the tourists are asleep or whatnot, but you can't control for that perfectly. You can't control for every factor. Well, we think that the future uh, of uh, low Earth orbit and, and beyond really is, is much more attuned to that kind of purpose-built uh, laboratory or factory style outpost where you have different customers, different needs being served in different orbits that are attuned to the type of demand that you're trying to stimulate. That is to say, to the customer's needs. Um, so would, for instance, tourists be happier in a polar sun synchronous orbit? Would they be happier in an ISS orbit? Uh, would they be happier in a uh, in an equatorial orbit? Um, these are all questions that, that we have to answer that we've tried to start answering with the Leo commercialization study, um, but we're certainly not going to arrive at an optimal solution by saying that, um, okay, well, here are all of the needs we want the future outpost to meet. Uh, a, a free flyer in ISS orbit that is permanently crewed and uh, also serves as an industrial base and a bio lab for, you know, biopharmaceutical, life science, uh, potentially game-changing agricultural applications. That's just not how we envision 
the future. Maybe we need to try that once and just show that that, that style of outpost can be managed commercially. Uh, but that's certainly not where we see the future going. I mean, it, it, you know, in the future, that would be like saying to tourists, uh, you can have a two night stay at our uh, luxury suite in the Texas uh, oil refinery just outside of Houston. Uh, you'll have the best hotel. It'll be a great pool. Uh, by the way, we have great air filtration systems, so none of those chemical—pardon <laughs> me—chemicals get into your room while you're sleeping. Um, That—that's—I mean, as as insane as that sounds on Earth, uh, we envision a a uh, future where where that will sound uh, equally kind of ridiculous uh, in in lower orbit. Um, we're not planning on stopping at just one outpost uh, by by no means. Uh, we want multiple, again, for multiple customers with multiple needs. So hopefully that kind of gets at what you're trying to say, but I'm happy to get more specific. And what about, um, I mean, this sort of leads me to uh, one thought. Uh, so you're talking, let's say you could have a free flyer that's specific for the, the tourists, but would you actually create something, uh, a manufacturing facility that was, let's say, totally robotic, with very little human intervention so that you could actually do some of the things that you don't want, you know, you don't want humans inter- interfering with it? You know, that that's not only uh, one of uh, one of the plans that, that we have. That's probably my favorite plan. Uh, listen, humans make things tough. Um, and I, I will come out as a believer in, in human exploration of the solar system, uh, certainly of LEO. Uh, you know, I, I think there are immense benefits from that. And, and NASA is doing an extraordinary job encouraging the, uh, the commercial sector to get more involved in that. I couldn't agree more, but there are uh, instances where it's just not uh, where it's, it's just not practical. So absolutely. Uh, at least in, in the near to medium term, I think we need to get a lot better at fully robotic or telerobotically operated concepts of operation. That's why we had, uh, and here's another shout out to Olus Robotics, uh, based in uh, based in Seattle uh, on our uh, on our team in Leocom. We wanted to understand, you know, if humans aren't going to be a part of the manufacturing process. Uh, what role uh, could robotics play? But also, you know, AI isn't, you know, we, we don't live in the AI future quite yet where, uh, you know, uh, a robotic arm that has multiple grapple fixtures and, and multiple, you know, uh, uh, degrees of freedom can do all these crazy cool experiments and, and it's, you know, it has multiple use cases. That's, we're not quite there yet in terms of affordable uh, uh, in-space technology. So Olus was there to teach us how to telerobotically operate um, our, uh, our robots from, uh, from the ground. And maybe even we get to a future where a customer uh, doesn't really want to send an astronaut up for all the expense that that would incur. Uh, but they have a, a purpose-built lab on orbit that uh, they have their scientists or their technicians managing from the ground uh, you know, uh, optimizing or, or managing their experiments or their production processes, loading those onto a payload return capsule, pressing the button, returning that capsule back to Earth and benefiting from uh, whatever has been uh, uh, produced. I mean, that's that's really where we think uh, this this, you know, so-called uh, uh, robotic uh, industrial uh, outpost is is going. And that's that's what we really want to see. And, and there are a lot of hurdles to cover. I mean, listen, sending up an astronaut makes things 
Uh, it's it's a double-edged sword. It makes a lot of things easier. It makes a lot of things much harder. Uh, namely, on the harder side, you have environmental control and life support systems, uh, transportation, to say the least, keeping them happy and sane, for goodness sake. Um, but, uh, but, you know, on the, uh, on the pro side, humans, uh, are very well built to manage human built machines. Uh, our hands are very dexterous. Our minds are extraordinary at solving, uh, uh, at solving problems, uh, in, you know, uh, multifaceted nonlinear problems and recognizing patterns where perhaps, uh, a, a machine would not. Uh, our depth perception is really good. Machines have, have a little little way to to, to uh, go to, to match that. Um, but uh, but on the other side, um, you know, when when a machine when when it when it is just a robotically uh, managed outpost, uh, we are able to take slightly more risk and dedicate slightly more uh, uh, time to thinking about, well, what, what are the really cool applications that we can do? All right. So for instance, if an astronaut is on board, we're going to be a lot more concerned about any off-gassing that occurs uh, from, uh, you know, I, I don't know, mixing two chemicals aboard the station. Um, when we don't have to think about all of those layers of containment and all of those, you know, safety concerns that that we very rightly have to think about today, working on the ISS, um, that gives us a freedom that uh, that that we've just never had on spaceborne platforms, um, and and we're really looking for that uh, those new degrees of freedom to unleash market potential that. Uh, that we haven't been able to even think about um, uh, when when dealing with a, a crude platform. That's that's really why we're so interested in in these robotic cutoffs. Now, would the contract that Made in Space just got from NASA to uh, do a follow-on manufacturing uh, assembly uh, flight demo? of uh, two solar panels be considered your first free flyer manufacturing uh, component? Uh, that's that's awesome. We we could not be uh, more excited for what Made in Space is doing. Uh, we see that as a critical component uh, of our future architecture, tech, uh, architecture and, and certainly technologies like that and that will uh, we hope inevitably spawn from from the research that that they're doing now. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, why not? Uh, there there have been, uh, to, to my knowledge, other uh, really interesting in space manufacturing uh, uh, experiments and uh, and demonstrations. Uh, this one is is for for the way that they're planning to do this thing it's it's i think certainly going to be uh one of the more if not the most uh, high visibility kind of demonstration uh to this point uh, and we're really excited to see the uh the results from uh nasa and maiden spaces uh work on that um definitely want to look at that as a as a component of future architecture now, um, and and certainly capabilities like that we're interested in in terms of a, the, a free flyer around the space station, uh, two-part question: What would what do you think we'll see first, and 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 when? 
Yeah, great question. Uh, so for for uh, for your listeners, I, I should note that that when we say things like a free flyer around the station, we we have to be very careful. The uh, getting getting to the station uh, is a obviously uh, a very involved process, and uh, NASA is again rightly very careful about you know what can be placed anywhere near the ISS, certainly at the ISS's altitude and inclination. Uh, we we just do not want any scenarios where anything we do uh, uh, has any potential of you know recontacting or interfering with the ISS's orbit or endangering the ISS in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so it's not like we're going to put a uh, you know a robot or an outpost you know a hundred meters away from the ISS and say, okay, well let's let's you know have a, a little ferry that goes between the two and. Each one of those processes, like every one of those components and, and operations is very difficult. So getting the licensing or, or getting the the, uh, the the safety work done to make sure that you can conduct proximity operations, so docking and undocking a spacecraft between your outpost and then the ISS, all that is is you know a very involved process and it's and it is costly and time consuming, uh, but but it, it is critical uh, uh, to ensure the continued safety of the ISS. So when we talk about having outposts, we, we talk about, and in relation to the ISS, we talk about having those outposts in the ISS's inclination and altitude, but a, a set distance away from that space station so we do not interfere or cause, cause any danger to it. So let's assume, for instance, that you know we are in a trailing orbit of the ISS you know, uh, uh, in 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 the ISS's inclination, uh, 52.6, uh, uh, 400 400 kilometers uh, in altitude, um, and you know, being in that orbit confers to us uh, a a number of advantages. Number one, uh, if we do want crew on board, we can avail ourselves of the existing NASA infrastructure for crew transport to the ISS. So we're going to have two vehicles coming online uh, uh, very soon. You know, SpaceX uh, uh, Crew Dragon and uh, Boeing Starliner. And we're very, very excited to to see those come, uh, uh, come into operation. And is a future possible where uh, those uh, visit both our outpost uh, and then do a uh, do a maneuver uh, to put themselves into a lower orbit, speed up, catch up to the ISS, uh, drop off either more crew or more supplies at the ISS, uh, potentially undock, visit outpost once again, capture uh, capture the crew that that we uh, we left aboard outpost and bring everybody safely back down to earth. I mean that's that's really my ideal future um, for uh, for operations that are within the ISS's kind of area of uh, area of responsibility, area of operations, um, and and we uh, or, or I you know I shouldn't shouldn't speak for all of Manorax, but I think we're pretty bullish on that happening uh, in the uh, in the mid to mid to late 2020s. Definitely as ISS uh, transitions into a more commercially uh, operated platform, uh, you know, that that would be necessary not only for uh, the continued, um, you know, continued expansion of the Leo economy, uh, but definitely for ISS transition and definitely to keep, uh, you know, to 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 keep our astronauts, uh, you know, uh, to, to, 
make sure that they have plenty of activity uh, up in uh, up in low Earth orbit. Um, and and there will certainly, I mean, we we hope and anticipate that there will be a lot of uh, um, you know a lot of a lot of science uh, to be done on a uh, uh, on a uh, crewed and uncrewed platform in ISS orbit. But yeah, I, I would say to to kind of directly answer your question based on. You know what what NASA's current uh, current moves are with the contracts that it's uh, that it's soliciting and and the ideas that it's it's talking about publicly. I think mid to late 2020s uh, would be would be a safe bet to see some of the first free flyers uh, in ISS orbit um, kind of start start to start to take shape. If not, already be be placed on orbit uh, and act as an additional destination for. Uh, both industrial production, uh, research, and uh, and crew, definitely. Now, one of the other things that the study states, uh, and I suppose this goes to if you're a commercial investor, uh, and you know you don't have your own platform, you're using the ISS as your platform. Um, the study states that investors in the ISS hardware must have guaranteed access to their own hardware. And it also states the government must not step in to decide which commercial activities have merit and which do not. How do you balance that from what the commercial entity wants and what NASA and the other partners are willing uh, to let uh, happen on the space station? Yeah, this is a this is a huge question, and and you're really you're asking two uh, kind of separate questions there. I, I I can see how they'd interface, but but let me start by um, you know by by addressing uh, your your first question, which is you know what what do we really mean when we say that a, a commercial provider must have access uh, to its own hardware. Um, you know, and and that the government should, you know, and kind of concurrent to that, not step in and, and decide who the winners are and 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 what more we need. Um, when we say we should have access to our own hardware, uh, what we mean is if a private company invests in uh, in fully commercial hardware. Now let's let's use our airlock as an example. Um, and again, the airlock is going up in, uh, you know, in SpaceX 21 next year, uh, October, November timeframe. Uh, if we have invested in this hardware on a fully commercial basis, and we have, we've not asked the government for any investment uh, on the airlock. This is, this is not a government funded contract or a project in any way, shape or form. Uh, we have done our own internal work uh, to determine that we believe this is a competitive service that could be revenue generating for a number of reasons that we're very excited about, including trash disposal, including satellite deployments, uh, and, and certainly uh, uh, hosted payloads on the outside. That's what we've built it for. We think that we can make up our initial investment. Uh, NASA should not step in or NASA or the partners uh, should not step in to say, and when I say should not, I'm, I'm certainly not attempting to dictate terms. I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, for the listeners and, and whoever they may be, that this is, this is what we think is necessary to continue facilitating this, uh, this economy, right. And, and, and the vibrancy of, of commercial exchange and 
you know, in low Earth orbit. Um, so NASA should not step in to say, okay, Nanorax, um, you know, you have this investment abroad, uh, you know, on board. Um, we will, uh, uh, we will take it over for a set period of time, run our own concepts of operation, you know, run our own deployments. And then, you know, you can, uh, uh, you can have it back, uh, after, after we're done. And we're also going to, you know, kind of dictate, uh, who your customers can be. And, and we really like one thing, but we don't like the other. So, um, you can't, uh, you know, you, you can't put up, uh, just any old box. Uh, it has to be a, has to be a, a science experiment or, or something, um, that, that limits our ability to generate revenue off of something that, that we have made a, a specific investment in. And, and I guess the, the analog here, because I, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people saying like, well, wait a minute, the ISS was built for, uh, you know, for, for the good of all mankind. And, and it's, you know, it's there to, to do, you know, only one thing or, or a set number of things and, and nothing else is acceptable. And, and I, I do want to challenge that and say, you know, well, uh, at the same time, though, the, the government builds infrastructure in a, in a lot of ways. You know, we, we have this, this social contract in you know, the United States where, we we have a a government which invests in roads and infrastructure businesses and and communities avail themselves of that infrastructure build up businesses uh next to the infrastructure and and benefit from uh from the access that that infrastructure gives customers again using the roads example um not to really belittle the ISS by comparing it to a road but but hopefully that that parallel kind of you know, uh, holds, uh, at least a little bit. Um, you know, so, so in, in that sense, uh, it, it becomes kind of difficult for us to, to recoup investment, um, uh, to, to recoup the investment that we've made and, and to continue kind of pushing for the extension of the ISS and, and keep pushing for the positive use of the ISS if we're not allowed to, to essentially do, uh, and I don't want to say what we want, but but do do things with with a fair degree of freedom. Now, of course, this excludes things that would, you know, endanger the astronauts in any way. We understand NASA's safety concerns, and again, they're very justifiable. And we have to work within those parameters. And of course, this excludes kind of the more ridiculous things that I'm sure the, the more creative uh, of your listeners can come up with quite easily about what we would do uh, with, with our own hardware. But things like, you know, flying up uh, somebody's wedding band and displaying it uh, for a cost in, uh, in microgravity spinning around. I mean, you don't know that that has very little scientific purpose to it. But a couple of questions. Number one, uh, does that generate revenue for us? And does that then help us push the use of the ISS uh, for other scientific and beneficial purposes? Absolutely. Does that help generate excitement about science and space? I argue absolutely it does. And, and that is a net positive, not only for our company uh, and, and our ability to generate revenue, but certainly uh, for, uh, for, for people generally in support of continued exploration, in support of continued science, uh, 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 science work. Um, and, and so, you know, answering kind of those questions, uh, and, and that's, that's really already leading into your second question, which is, 
which is I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting to what, what the overlap is, but I really want to address it specifically in the context of the commercial policy that NASA has, uh, has just released. Um, and, and that, uh, uh, that commercial policy, uh, states, uh, states, you know, very clearly that, that within certain parameters, uh, a, uh, a commercial, uh, supplier of, uh, you know, services on the ISS can send up uh, non-scientific or non-conforming uh, payloads uh, to the ISS, charge their customers whatever they want, so long as we pay a fee to NASA, like a use tax. And those numbers are very well documented. Um, uh, you know, NASA's costs are very well documented. I, we could not be more supportive at Nanoracks of this approach. Again, if somebody would like to fly a picture of their niece, nephew, granddaughter, whatever, uh, to the cupola, have an astronaut take a picture uh, of that person, uh, and NASA recoups both the astronaut time. Uh, an expense that they've incurred by having the astronaut do that work and then recoups the cost of the up mass. So how much uh, weight did they have to, uh, did they have to displace on, on one of their uh, spacecraft to, uh, uh, to do that thing? Um, uh, we, we think, uh, we think that is exactly the right approach. And, and let me get into uh, a little bit, you know, uh, a little bit of why, because I, I think flying up photographs and wedding rings, uh, while great for some people, is, is a little bit of a, a flippant uh, example. Um, to this point, as, as I mean, many of you listeners might know, uh, NASA takes great care at ensuring that everything that goes up to the ISS in terms of, you know, things, things that we do has scientific uh, or programmatic uh, merit. Uh, and so, we can't just fly, uh, you know, uh, bottles of bottles of perfume and uh, go back on Earth and, and sell those bottles of perfume uh, at a, you know, 400 percent markup because they've been to space. And actually, I think the markup would be significantly more than that. Um, that's that's not, you know, right. On, on on today's uh, setup of the ISS, but on a commercial space station, which the ISS is trying to transition to, uh, in at least in part part of the operations, uh, that should uh, should be acceptable. Uh, and there are a number of reasons for why that is that is the right way to go. And it is not just uh, for uh, you know uh, settling the whims of the ultra wealthy. I uh, suppose in the future, there is a commercial company, a fully commercial company that believes that there is some life uh, saving application that can only be manufactured in a pristine manufa- uh, in a pristine microgravity environment or life saving research that can only be conducted uh, in uh, in microgravity. Now, granted, right now, that kind of uh, uh, that kind of fits in with with what the ISS is, is really purpose built for. So we don't expect that to fall into the commercial, uh, um, you know, into to kind of the commercial policy. But when it comes to sending up payloads over and over and over and, uh, and you know, doing not only uh, research, but industrial scale production, which you're turning, turning around on earth and selling uh, to turn a profit and then do more research and more production, well, then it starts to straddle that line 
uh, in between uh, commercial and, uh, and, and scientific, and, and especially if those companies are, are making a tidy, tidy profit off of the work that they're doing on you know, this public-funded infrastructure. So naturally, if you know, NASA comes in and says, uh, you know, uh, okay, well, you're, you're going to need to pay us for that, I, I think that's a fair exchange. But how does this tie into things that are flippant, like, uh, you know, sending up wedding rings and, uh, and, and photographs? Well, if NASA starts saying to, or, or really dedicating a lot of time to looking with laser focus on every single commercial uh, uh, project that we might want to send uh, to the ISS, NASA and the partners, to the ISS, and says, okay, this is good, but this is not because we don't think it has really Really all the merit that it should. So try again. And, you know, even though you're under the commercial allocation, we really don't like this experiment. Um, so, so don't send it up. And again, this completely, uh, this, this does not account for experiments that, that endanger, uh, the astronauts or, or cause safety hazard anyway. So let's, let's just leave all those to the side. NASA, of course, has 100% right to reject any project for, for that reason. And again, rightly so, but, um, for things that, that do no harm, um, for for NASA and, and other partners to come in and say, you know, come in and really pick and choose who can go up and who can't, that sets expectations in the marketplace where a company that might want to invest in those game-changing or life-saving or, or world-altering applications might hesitate before making the uh, admittedly rather large investment in the kind of research that they would need to do in space to, to, to get it to a point where it's commercially valuable. Um, and, and we want to avoid that situation. We want to encourage people by saying, hey, look, it's easy to get your stuff up to the space station. If you have an idea, we can help you build it. Um, you know, the ISS is a great place to not only do research, but manufacturing. And by the way, we're also in the future going to be building out this ecosystem of, uh, of factories and destinations in low Earth orbit uh, and beyond. And, and this is a perfect platform to test out those applications so you can fluidly move into this LEO economy in the future. That's what we want to facilitate. That's what we're glad NASA is really listening to us uh, about with the new commercial policy. And, and you know, we've, we've seen great progress in, in everyone's thinking on this issue. So, so I, you know, you, you've asked two very complex questions that, you know, have have a lot of layers. Um, you know, uh, what do we mean when we say we should have access to our own hardware? And and what do we mean when we say uh, NASA should not kind of step in and uh, and and choose payloads and, and choose winners? It can't discriminate between payloads. Hopefully, I've I've answered both of those questions, at least to some extent, I think in the first case, Having access to our own hardware is a lot about recouping our own investments in our own way, so long as it, again, does not interfere, interfere with, uh, with NASA uh, operations and astronaut safety. Um, in, in the second case, you know, I, I think it's critical to remember that we as a uh, we, we need uh, our partners at NASA to help us set expectations in the marketplace that the ISS is an easy 
place to do business uh, on a repeating basis and, and, you know, payloads or applications won't be discriminated against uh, because the more stuff that goes up to the ISS, uh, the better for everybody. The more revenue is generated, uh, the more interest we generate in low Earth orbit, and the more chances we give to the market to come up with some really interesting applications uh, for what can be done in space. So hopefully that uh, summarizes it. I think you did a thorough job in summarizing the two, the two questions. All right, I, I have uh, one last question. Um, so, what does the potential development of a cislunar outpost and moon base mean for commercial Leo outposts? Sure. Um, well, uh, you know, the, the moon is just another place to do business. Uh, for us, we are, uh, you know, we're, we're eagerly awaiting uh, the first few components of, uh, of, the, uh, of the Lunar Gateway to go up. Um, you know, we, we have been approached uh, multiple times by, by many parties. Uh, I won't say who, but I'm sure you can be able to pay attention to, uh, to the news over the next, uh, over the next couple months and, and find out for yourselves. I, it's, it's already public that, that we're working with Lockheed Martin on uh, commercialization of, uh, of Orion, um, and we're deeply excited about that. And and uh, you'll you'll be seeing more news on that in the in the coming uh, months and years. Um, but uh, you know, from looking uh, looking at that market, I, I gotta say that they, they're two different environments. Uh, they're they're two very different markets, um, and I think uh, uh, two very different use cases. Um, you know, just like I could I could sit here and tell you with a very straight face that uh, ISS orbit is not polar orbit, is not equatorial orbit, certainly not, uh, you know, MEO or GEO orbit. Um, I can easily tell you that lunar orbit has nothing to do with, uh, uh, with low Earth orbit and the kinds of outposts that we would put in LEO. And, you know, that might sound like a, <laughs> that is a very obvious statement. Obviously, they're not the same thing. Um, but I think it's very easy to say, oh, okay, if it's space, therefore, uh, we're just going to do CubeSat deployments, or we're going to do life science research, or we're going to do, uh, you know, solar wind experiments. I mean, guys, like, you know, newsflash, we are well within the Van Allen belts uh, in, in LEO. Uh, solar wind is very different. Uh, um, you know, uh, uh, very molecular, uh, molecular oxygen, hydrogen are, are everywhere. Uh, and, and we can't do certain things, uh, in Leo, uh, because of that. Um, whereas, uh, the lunar environment is, uh, besides being around the moon and, and that in and of itself being, uh, an extraordinary opportunity for observation and, and science, uh, if, if we are to, to found a more permanent presence there. Uh, besides that, uh, the vacuum is is much more much more pristine. Uh, the radiation is much more intense, uh, and and so that that adds stresses and and controls on the science that we can do there uh, that we just can't do in Leo. Um, so, do I see really one affecting the other? Um, in in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. And 
uh, on the on the yes side, uh, you know, developing the kinds of technologies and the expertise and the ecosystems that will help us thrive in Leo as one coherent economy, uh, one interdependent economy, I think will also teach us very important lessons uh, about the kinds of economies and, and the kinds of activities and the kinds of collaborations that will work in lunar and, by the way, Mars and, and beyond. I mean, the, the building blocks that we're that we're figuring out in Leo are certainly going to be uh, integral to to what or or and and extremely important to what we take take with us uh, to further destinations. Um, so that's that's part one. Um, but uh, but on the no side, I, I would say you know the the conditions are are so different that you know looking at the same types of experiments um, might might do us a disservice or we're looking at the same types of activities because actually doing the same experiment in two different environments could be very interesting. Um, but, uh, or certainly will be very interesting without a doubt. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not, if, if you're trying to get at like, am I worried that there's competition from NASA in, in, uh, in lunar because of the gateway? Like, no, no, that's, they're again, different enough that, uh, um, that, uh, that that I wouldn't qualify that as a worry, um, but like everything else, it's uh, it's an opportunity, um, and uh, just very excited to see how it develops, um, and uh, and to you know get back uh, get back to the moon. Okay, well, I think our audience will have gotten a pretty good picture of the commercialization study. Um, what's going to happen in 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 Leo? Uh, from a commercial perspective in, in the near, possibly midterm. Um, so thank you again, Adrian, for being on the show. Um, as things progress, I hope we can get you back on the show to give us an update at some point. Absolutely. It has been uh, my pleasure, and I look forward to talking again in the near future. Well, that's a wrap on this two-part podcast series. Tune in next week to learn about Rocket Labs and Deep Space Industries with Grant Bonin. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca. I read and answer all your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space, and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook. Regardless of which app you use to listen to us, we would really appreciate it if you could rate our podcast and write a review. Of course, that's only if you like us. Your rating and review will really help us in getting the podcast widely listened to. Thank you. <laughs>